Um, so we've been, we've been talking and, and praying as a church um, about whether we might be able to church plant um, somewhere else uh, on, the, on the island. It's, it's, uh, I guess in, in our DNA, it's, it's where Grace Church came from. Uh, I guess Grace Church is probably more of a replant than a plant, I guess, as, as, as under God, um, a, a tiny church about to close its doors became, uh, along, with, along with Esther and I and our, our young family, an unlikely core team for a new gospel work. Um, and, and that was because we were convinced... As a, as a small core team, we were convinced that preaching the gospel and planting churches is the very heart of the mission that the risen Christ has given us. And, and we see that in the book of Acts, don't we? We see it uh, uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts, of course, where as the risen Christ is about to return to his father, he promises his disciples that he's not leaving them but will continue to be present with them through the imminent arrival of his spirit to empower them. That's Acts 1 verse 8, isn't it? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which he will, uh, of course, at Pentecost. And what for? Well, it's because he has a mission for them. It's that you will be my witnesses. He says, where will that uh, happen well in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, even though Jesus is returning to the Father, he is sending his spirit to empower his church for the mission that he is giving to them, and that mission is to send them out to be his witnesses. So, not just where they already are in Jerusalem, but out towards the ends of the earth and the rest of the book of Acts kind of charts the progress of the outward spread of the gospel in the hands of God's people by the power of God's spirit and Luke records all this for us so that we the subsequent generations will know not simply what the mission is but also how the early disciples went about that mission which as we see is by preaching the gospel and planting local churches um, and yet, as we talk and pray and, and plan about doing that again here, we might be nervous. We might be nervous about whether the gospel can really cut it in 21st century post-Christian Europe, the environment that we find ourselves in, an environment of secularism rather than Christianity, an environment of many religions rather than one, uh, and, and an environment of opposition rather than affirmation. So is the gospel punching above its weight in 21st century Europe? I think these chapters, 16 to 20, that we're looking at at the moment, I think they're helpful in that regard because they show what happens when the gospel of the Lord Jesus comes up against what I think are strikingly uh, a similar culture of first century Europe. If you were with us last week, uh, we were in chapter 16, we saw how the gospel just established this fragile little toehold uh, in, in, in pagan Europe, courtesy of a tiny house church that has now been established in Lydia's home in the city of Philippi. And, and that chapter gave us encouragement and challenge, didn't it, from the opposition that was faced by that, that little first century church planting team. The, the encouragement, of course, was that nothing that Satan can oppose the spread of the gospel with 
can scupper God's plans to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. We saw that encouragement, didn't we? And so came the challenge to put the proclamation and the reputation of the gospel first in our lives and in our decisions, as we saw God's people doing in Philippi. What I'd love us to see this week in this first half of chapter 17 is not so much the opposition to the gospel that we saw the last time, but rather that the gospel method and message, if you like, that Paul uses to get the gospel into pre-Christian Europe. And, and also the responses, the reactions that it produces in those who hear it. Because I think here too, there's much for us in 21st century Europe to, to learn. Because not only are Satan's strategies the same as they were back then, we saw that last week, but I think European culture is fundamentally the same as it was back then too. And you might think, Steve, that's a crazy thing to say. Um, because, of course, in, in one sense, Europe has changed massively, hasn't it? Even in the last century, Europe has changed massively. I mean, it was only 80 years ago we were all at war with each other. We were fighting a world war in Europe, weren't we? Now we go on holiday there. <laughs> now, now we trade there. Uh, many, of, many of the countries are in a common union with each other. And, and we even share the same currency, many of the, the countries. And of course, as Europeans, we pride ourselves, don't we, on how countries with a diversity of cultures and beliefs, by and large, peacefully coexist together under a common set of what we might call Western liberal values and, and freedoms. And, and of course, I think there's a lot that we should be grateful to God for in all of that, because despite the little spats that we seem to have over things like Brexit or COVID vaccines or something like that, actually Europe as a whole is a substantially more peaceful and prosperous place than it was 80 years ago. But with all that, of course, is the fact that Christianity has been struggling to find its place, hasn't it? Europe is moving away from its nominally Christian moorings, where, where Christianity, at least notionally, was embedded in the culture and the values of the nations, and it's moving towards more of a post-Christian culture now, which, which celebrates religious diversity on the one hand, it loves that, and yet it considers biblical Christianity to be intolerant or bigoted, and, and actually often a threat to those liberal Western values. In other words, the influence of biblical Christianity in European culture is waning very quickly. And so for us as Christians in a post-Christian culture, any thought you know, that Europeans might become Christians you know, in any significant numbers, that might seem like hugely unlikely to us, you know, like, that, like that ship has sailed. But what I think this passage shows us is that first century Europe wasn't Christian either. But it too was a proud, progressive, pluralistic society that was multicultural and multi-faith and united under a common union, the Roman Empire, and profoundly distrustful of Christian values. And yet something happened. Something happened during that time to cause thousands of Europeans to become Christians. And for churches to become established in every city. And for European culture itself to start to change. And friends, it was the gospel that did that. And what we see here in chapter 17 is both the method and the message that Paul uses to bring that gospel to a Europe that I think is fundamentally the same today as it was then. 
So let's have a look. Um, it, you'll see the passage. I've done nothing very fancy with the, with the, uh, the, the outline. You'll see the passage is in two parts where I think Luke compares and contrasts the reception of the gospel in two European cities. Firstly, in Thessalonica, we're going to spend most of our time there. And then just very quickly at the end in Berea as well. So have a look at verses 1 to 9, where the gospel arrives in Thessalonica. You'll, re- you'll remember, if you were here last week, that, that after preaching the gospel in Philippi, just for a few days, they were asked to leave, which, which they've done. They, they've, they've left behind this little house church there to carry on the work. And, and they've travelled up the main trade route, heading for the capital city of the region, which was Thessalonica. That's about a three-day journey. Um, So they they make a couple of stops along the way, verse 1, until they arrive in the capital and they head for the synagogue. Do you notice that? There evidently is a synagogue there. And so Paul reverts back to his pattern of of going there first. Um, You you can see in earlier passages of Acts that he, he has a range of reasons, I think, for doing that. But one of the practical reasons, actually, you can see here in verse 4, for example, is that not only Jews but also devout or or God-fearing Greeks, including some prominent women in the city, would be gathered together in the synagogue each week to listen to preaching. You know, so that's an open door, isn't it? There's a ready-made audience, if you like, for the, the message that Paul is bringing. But actually, even more attractive than that is that the synagogue is a place where Paul can open the scriptures with people. Uh, Do you notice that in verse 2? Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And I think that's key to to understand what Paul's trying to do here. And and not just in Thessalonica. He does this in in the other European cities that he visits as well. He does it in Berea and in Athens and Corinth and Ephesus uh, and so on. What's his method? How exactly does he seek to get the gospel message into first century Europe? He does it by preaching the gospel message. And you might think, duh, you know, there's a statement of the blindingly obvious, Steve. <laughs> you know, the, the method right through the, the book of Acts by, by which any disciples get the gospel into the regions they find themselves in is by preaching it. But, but actually, we can see here what that looks like in practice, because Luke breaks that down a bit for us. He, he shows us what he means by, by preaching, what that, what that involved. And, and I think that's really helpful Because in our 21st century Europe, it's probably fair to say that the word preaching can have fairly negative connotations, can't it? It's a word that often smacks of kind of, you know, out of touch people kind of yelling at you in a a sort of moralizing, finger pointing, you know, pulpit thumping kind of way about how you should live from from a position of a few feet above contradiction and, and with no right of reply. Now, that's a bit of a stereotype, of course, but actually it's not without some truth to it either, is it? And no wonder people don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that either. But in reaction to that, I think the church today is often questioned whether preaching has really had its day. Oh, it's just too dogmatic, you know, we'd we'd rather have a discussion and so on. But before we dismiss preaching on the basis of its stereotypes... We ought to take a closer look, didn't we, at what Paul's preaching here looks like, because I think it's a million miles away from the stereotypes. Have a look at verse 2 again. And notice firstly that Paul doesn't speak at them, but reasons with them from the scriptures. Do you see that? And, And the point is, of course, these are people. 
Okay, they've got minds that think, they've got emotions that feel, they've got joys and sorrows, they've got hopes and fears, they've got opinions and prejudices. So he's not simply concerned to kind of blast the scriptures at them, but he's seeking to engage their their minds, their hearts, their affections, their worldviews with the scriptures. Um, I was thinking about that um, that old stereotype, you know, of the Englishman abroad. Um, who thinks that he can make himself understood with the locals, you know, not by speaking their language, but just by shouting a bit louder. (laughs) You know, our preaching can be like that sometimes, can't it? Just a loud voice that blasts out truth from the scriptures, but doesn't connect with the people we're preaching to. Paul's preaching is not like that. He gives thought to the people he's trying to reach so that he knows where they're coming from and understands what makes them tick, and and can therefore bring the Bible to bear in in such a way as to connect with them, using their language, understanding their world, and and, and so on. Uh, You might remember when Paul writes, actually, to the the church in Thessalonica here in in 1 Thessalonians 2, he says in verse 8 that they were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Do you see? Preaching is not at people. It's reasoning with people as as one human being to another. Um, Also notice that Paul's preaching is over a number of consecutive weeks. Do you see that? Verse 2, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And and in fact, I I think if it hadn't been for the the, the violent reaction that he got in verse 5, he'd probably have been there for a lot longer, as, as he often seemed to do. Basically, I think, as far as I can make out, for as long as he was welcomed. And that that tells us something about preaching, actually, doesn't it? That that preaching is not like kind of lobbing a hand grenade, you know, where you sort of throw once and you beat a hasty retreat and then you hope that it goes off and has the desired effect. (laughs) Preaching is something we do over time because the message is is big and it's it's rich and it takes time to explain it fully and thoroughly and and to apply it to, to, to... to hearts and minds and, and, and so that people can grasp it and let it sink in and chew over it and be persuaded by it. And so Paul's method is to, is to keep consecutively preaching week by week, opening up the scriptures for as long as people will let him. So, so that over time, the word can do its work of change in, in people's hearts and, and minds. So Paul's preaching is consecutive and it's reasoning with people, not just talking at people. And, and also, of course, look, you can see this most obviously in verse 2. It's from the scriptures. In other words, to be a Christian preacher is to be a Bible teacher. So preaching is not, um, in other words, just a nice moral message. It's not a motivational speech. It's not a TED talk. It's not an opinion. It's not social comment. And and its purpose is not to entertain us, it's not to make us laugh, it's not to tell us stories, it's not even to give us a testimony. Of course, preaching may well include all of those things. But the main task of the preacher is to open up the Bible, the, the written word of God, and explain and apply it to people. And friends, just notice how Paul does that in fact Luke doesn't use the word preaching here he uses these five actually other words to describe what 
what Paul is, is doing. First word, we've, we've seen it already, is the word reasoned. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he doesn't just stand up and tell them what to believe. But he presents arguments. He, he reasons it out with them from the scriptures. In other words, Paul doesn't want passive listening with no active engagement so that the, that the scriptures just kind of wash over the, the listeners. But rather he's getting them to engage with, with the scriptures in examining what it says for themselves and showing them that it's reasonable, that it, it makes sense. And actually there's no reason to, to suppose that this precluded uh, the asking and answering of any questions that came up as the reasoning from the scriptures went on. In fact, there's, there's more than a hint in the, in the word that we translate their reasoning to, to, to suggest that it contains dialogue, not simply monologue. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we like uh, to use the teaching from a Sunday morning, often in our growth groups during the week, or, or that we encourage people to, to talk about the sermon over coffee and ask questions and so on, so that we're not just listening passively to God's word, but we're actively engaging with it. Uh, you'll notice some other words that he uses, verse 3, are explaining and proving. And, and, and that's because scripture is not supposed to mean lots of different things to different people. You know, like a set of sort of subjective texts that you can kind of interpret any way that you think might be helpful. Scripture is the word of God. And as such, it has an objective meaning. You know, God, the, the divine author, has something definite and objective in mind when he inspired the human authors of Scripture. And the task of the preacher is to open up and explain that meaning. In fact, the word explaining there, it literally means to, to open. You know, in other words, to, to unpack it, to, to show and prove its meaning to its hearers so that they can see it in, in the text and be convinced of it, not simply as the opinion of the preacher, but as the written word of God. Do you, do you see um, uh, we've seen that this, this word reasoned can, can include an element of dialogue uh, to it. But just in case we're tempted to think that therefore preaching can be just be kind of sitting around discussing the Bible, Luke uses another word in verse 3, proclaim. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So preaching is proclamation. In other words, it's not the sharing of opinions. It's the declaration of truth from God. As the Bible is unpacked, as its meaning is explained, so that people can see it in the pages of Scripture for themselves. In, in fact, actually, you know, preaching like that actually prevents the preacher, doesn't it, from simply sharing his opinions, just, just talking about his favourite subject. Because his task is not to do that, but just to, to tell them what it says on the page, as it were. Um, you'll see the final word there in verse 4, which is persuaded. In other words, Paul's objective with his preaching is not simply to educate people, but it's to bring about change in people. It's actually to change our thinking. See, the, the, the Bible's very clear that our sinfulness affects our thinking such that we don't automatically think in right ways, you know, in God-centric ways, but actually rather in wrong ways, in human-centric ways. And, and the Bible comes to us from, from outside of ourselves as a word from God to correct our thinking, to, to replace our ignorance with God's truth, to change our sin-corrupted minds to reflect his godly mind. 
In other words, its aim is to turn us. It's to change us, persuade us to think rightly about God. So like, so like Paul says uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, that's Paul's method. That's what preaching is. And, and I, I think it's really helpful. And, and it, it certainly explains what we're seeking to do here at, at Grace Church. It, it's why at the centre of our gatherings each week is, is simply the week-by-week week systematic teaching of the Bible, opening up consecutive passages in the Scriptures, explaining them and applying them as God's word to us to change us. Now, you, might be, you kind of might be thinking, well, you know, all that sounds quite obvious. Um, I, and I, actually, I don't suppose any sort of evangelical is going to necessarily disagree that teaching the Bible is at the heart of, of what we do. But friends, there is a big difference, isn't there, between agreeing that it should be central and intentionally keeping it central in the life of the church. And, and what we see here is that Paul's methodology, it comes from his confidence that the gospel will grow and spread, even in pagan Europe, as God's word is proclaimed by God's people, whether from a pulpit by a pastor or a park bench by you and me. So the method is consecutive preaching, teaching the Bible week by week. But what about the message? Okay, what, what, what was it that he was proclaiming in the scriptures? What is the Bible's message? And, and the answer, of course, is the gospel, isn't it? Have a look at verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So, so that's not the sum total of, of what Paul was preaching. That's Luke's kind of one sentence summary of it. Because, as, as we've just seen, Paul's preaching was the week by week systematic opening up and explaining of the scriptures to people. And of course, uh, for Paul, the scriptures meant the Old Testament. And, th and that's really important, actually, because it tells us that what Paul was doing week by week by week was opening up the Old Testament scriptures and explaining what they mean. And Luke's summary of that is that Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Do you, do you see the point there? In other words, Paul's preaching of the Old Testament was focused on showing people the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. And of course, that is what the Old Testament is all about, isn't it? It's about God's creation of the world and his rule over it. It's about his creation of us in his image to rule his world under him. It's about our rejection of him as ruler and trying to rule ourselves. Instead, bringing sin and its consequences into the world and cutting us off from God. It's about God's promise and plan, as we saw in the Bible, by to redeem his people by overcoming the problem of their sin and its judgment and bringing them back back into an eternal relationship with him, ultimately in a new heaven and a new earth. And, and how, will he, how will he do all that? Well, the Old Testament tells us he'll do it through the promised saviour king, the Messiah, or the Christ, 
that he will send for that very purpose, to, to suffer and die in our place, to purchase our forgiveness with his blood, and then rise again victorious over sin and death. Friends, that's the big story of the Old Testament, isn't it? And so that's what he preaches. He explains and proves from the Old Testament scriptures the necessity of the Christ's death and resurrection before then going on to show that this man Jesus, who who lived and taught around Galilee and, and died on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem, is in fact the Christ. That he claimed it. That he proved it by being raised from the dead. And seen by many witnesses. Do you see, friends? Paul's method is to week by week explain the Bible. But notice that as he explains the Bible, he's preaching the gospel. Or to put it the other way around, he preaches the gospel by explaining the Bible. That's what he does. And, and, and get the, the reaction to him doing that. Look in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So that's a positive reaction. It's that people have become Christians here. But it's, it's also quite low key, isn't it? It's not a Damascus Road type thing. They, they've heard Paul as he preached the gospel by explaining the Bible week by week, and they're persuaded. They've, they've changed their minds about Jesus. So nothing remarkable at one level, but actually at another level, it's, it's amazingly remarkable. <laughs> because having been persuaded, they then join Paul and Silas. In other words, Paul's gospel preaching resulted in those who were persuaded by it actually realigning themselves into a new Christian community, a new church. And by the sound of it, there were quite a few of them. <laughs> Jews, Gentiles, some prominent women in the, in the community. And friends, do you see the encouragement in that? There's no secret recipe. There's no special source. No, no special technique. No, no miracles needed. But when we simply preach the gospel by explaining the Bible, then by the power of God's spirit, some people will be convicted by it and they will become Christians. I find that a great encouragement, don't you? Of course, it's not the only reaction, is it? Because you'll notice in in verses 5 to 9 that the Jews enlist a group of kind of hooligans to to go on the rampage looking for Paul and Silas. And when they can't find them, they drag out Jason, this guy Jason, presumably a a recent convert, and, and some other Christians, and they haul them up in front of the city authorities and they make some accusations against them in the hope of silencing the gospel. Now, there's there's lots of things we we could notice here, but I just want us to notice one significant thing. And that is that despite living in a so-called tolerant and pluralistic society, they are deeply intolerant of the gospel. Just, Just think about that. This opposition is coming from a Jewish community in the middle of a major Greek city. In other words, they are surrounded by a plethora of different religions where their religion, Judaism, is is tolerated. There's a synagogue there. And where they tolerate other religions as well, the, the Greek ones. But when the gospel 
comes along and they hear its message, they don't want to reason from the scriptures. No, no, they want it silenced. You see? And friends, that's because of the message itself. It's because the message of the gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, which is a call for their Judaism to go, for for their lives to change as they submit to Jesus. that's, That's too much for them, and they want that message silenced. And do you see how they try to silence the, the gospel? They, they, do it by, <laughs> they do it by stirring up trouble and then blaming the trouble on the Christians. Uh, verse 5, they get a mob together to cause a riot in the city. And then verse 6, they blame it on the Christians. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And verse 7, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Do, do you see? So that they're kind of trying to, to portray Christianity as, as dangerous, as, as subversive, as, as causing trouble in, in a tolerant liberal society like theirs. Does that ring any bells? I think it should ring some bells, shouldn't it? Because there are plenty of parts of our society too that seek to present Christianity exactly like that, aren't they? As threatening to, to a tolerant, pluralistic Society because of its exclusive claims, or as subversive because it challenges some of those liberal Western values that our society holds so dear. So there's the method and the message, and the very mixed reactions to Paul's preaching in Thessalonica. But just as we close, do, let's do a quick compare and contrast with verses 10 to 16, uh, where the gospel comes to Berea. And and I'd love us to notice here that despite opposition from the Jews in Thessalonica, he doesn't change his strategy. Okay, verse 10, he arrives in Berea, he goes straight to the synagogue. That's quite bold, isn't it? (laughs) But you see, Paul knows that there's always a mixed reaction to the gospel. That although there's going to be a negative reaction, actually some people will become Christians. So he's quite happy to put up with the opposition that he expects in order that others might hear and believe. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Second thing to notice is that Luke doesn't bother explaining again Paul's preaching method and message. I think he just assumes that we'll realise it's the same. That he preaches the gospel by explaining the Bible week by week, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. I think that's inferred in verse 11, isn't it? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So I I don't think it's the method and the message that he wants us to contrast with with Thessalonica. He he assumes we'll we'll realise that's the same. But I think he does seem to want to show us the response to the preaching in Berea. Because he says, look, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. That's quite a striking comment, actually, isn't it? You know, he's, he's basically making the, the kind of the, the, the generalisation that the attitude towards the gospel in, in, in the people of one city is, is more noble than in another. In, in other words, the Bereans 
were not as prejudiced against the gospel as the Thessalonians were. That they were more open-minded towards it. That they were more inclined to give Paul a fair hearing. And so, verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was preaching was, was, was true. And Luke says that's a noble thing to do. That's helpful, isn't it? To, to, to see that actually we're all different. And so there are cultures, there are social groups, there are kinds of people for whom the gospel will be more or less readily received. That there are going to be some people like the Bereans who, who are going to be more broad-minded, more ready to examine the scriptures, more ready to give the gospel a hearing. And there are going to be others who are going to react differently, perhaps with prejudice or intolerance or anger. People who are going to respond to the gospel differently, in other words. But just look at these Bereans. Because they received the gospel with eagerness. Verse 11. They, they didn't believe it straight away, but they carefully examined it to see if it was true. And having done so, verse 12, they were convinced and they believed. That's great, isn't it? So it's not vastly different from Thessalonica. It's still a mixed response. But that's a really encouraging response, isn't it? So friends, what can we take away? What can we take away that's going to be helpful for us as we seek to preach the gospel into a Europe that I think is remarkably similar to the one we see here? What does the compare and contrast have to teach us? Here's two quick challenges for us. Firstly, here's a, here's a challenge from Paul's method, which is simply to preach the gospel by explaining the Bible to whoever will listen for as long as he's welcome. That's the method. That, that's the strategy here, and, and, and as we'll see, he continues with the same strategy in the other cities as well. He was doing it in Corinth, if you remember, for over a year and a half. He, he was doing it in Ephesus for three months in the synagogue, followed by two years of daily preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, if you remember, uh, as, as well as in Rome at the, at the end of the book for another two years. Because, friends, this is how it works. This is how the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. It's how God grows his church, both outwards in numbers and upwards in maturity. And, and that's what we are all about here at Grace Church. It's why any church planting we seek to do elsewhere on the island is going to have this conviction at the heart of it. To just preach the gospel by explaining the Bible week by week as we show from every page that Jesus is the Christ. And as we fill in the gospel picture from every passage of the Bible. That's, friends, how we will reach, win people for Christ in 21st century Europe. It was Paul's strategy in 1st century Europe, and friends, it needs to be our strategy today. And friends, that's why we want our meetings to be welcoming to everyone. That's why I'd encourage you to bring a friend on a Sunday. Don't just wait for a guest service or a, an event, because actually the regular gatherings of the church to sit under God's word are great gatherings to bring a friend to. Because the regular preaching of the Bible, week by week, is powerful to persuade and convince and bring change in people's minds and hearts. Whether that's from a, a, a pulpit by a, a pastor, or whether it's by us on a park bench. It's powerful to change people's hearts and minds. But a second bit of, of, of application here, I think, 
It is for those who, and perhaps this is you this morning, who are not yet convinced about the gospel and so not yet trusting in Christ for yourself, for your salvation. And I think um, the the challenge to you here from this, this kind of contrast between how it was received in Thessalonica and Berea, the challenge is simply to be a Berean. And like them, to carefully examine the scriptures and not to stop until you can see for yourself whether the gospel of the Lord Jesus is true or not. If you'd like to rise to that challenge, come and have a chat with me because I'd love to help you. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you so much uh, for showing us the, the, the method and the message of Paul's preaching. Please may it um, increase our confidence in its power to change lives as we simply preach the gospel by teaching the Bible week by week. And, and Father, if we're, not, uh, if we're here this morning and we're not yet trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for ourselves... Please would you convince us, we pray, and please would you keep us coming until we see for ourselves the great news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus.